Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkoff at an undisclosed location in the frozen north of the United States in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C. We have David Sanger of the New York Times. We have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And we have Ben Pauker, who until very recently was executive editor at Foreign Policy Magazine. And starting next week, will be managing editor for news at Vox and roaming around somewhere in the woods in California searching for mushrooms or whatever (laughs) people do in California is Corey Shockey. Now, Corey, I understand that you had a present made for David Sanger. I did indeed make David a present. And in fact, I know it's something he's going to love. And the reason I know it is because he asked me to make it for him. Wow, it it's sad. It's so sad. <laughs> hey, you know, at Christmas, usually you get gifts you don't want. You got to, like, be a little assertive, right? <laughs> you know what? I I didn't need him to trust my judgment. I love it that he told me what would make him happy. And so I made him a mug that says in small letters what the director of central intelligence, Mike Pompeo, said last week which is, Mr. Sanger just got this wrong. And then in large letters underneath it, it quotes my very frequent comment on this podcast, Deep State Nerds, David is exactly right. Of course, the odds that you're going to say that are up higher on this show since two of us are named David, right? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, but when I say it, I always and only mean David Sanger. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, David, I'm sure sure her saying that is even a better gift than the gift itself. It is. It also explains to you why Corey will never be CIA director. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't rule that out completely, also, by the way. Also, but, her yeah, laughter is way, way too infectious for the halls of the CIA, don't you think? <laughs> oh, you, you don't think Mike Pompeo has the, has a laugh that rings like a bell through the halls of the CIA? <laughs> <laughs> he, ha- he may have something that rings like a bell. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, David, would you like to explain for all the nerds out there in deep state land what the origin of this pathetic, sad gift is? Well, the great thing about the nerds who listen to Deep State Radio is they don't need they the explanation. Know. They, they know. know. They know. They know. But in case one or two of them has actually downloaded the wrong podcast and they don't know, we'll explain it. Um, my colleague Bill Broad and I spent a number of weeks trying to go pursue a sort of central conundrum that we just couldn't figure out, which was – 
how could the American intelligence agencies, which did an absolutely fabulous job starting around 2000 in projecting the long-term goals of the North Korean nuclear and missile program, they declared in 2000 that North Korea would have an ICBM that could hit a city in the United States by about 2015. In 2004, they upped that to 2019 or 2020. But, you know, that's pretty good work when you're going back uh, 16, 17 years and you're projecting something out. That would rank up among their best. And then in the past year, be taken by surprise by the launches that Kim Jong-un did in recent times. In fact, we learned in the course of our reporting that when President Trump and his aides got their first briefings about North Korea just about a year ago, what were they told? You have some time to deal with this because they won't have an ICBM that can accurately reach a city in the United States until 2020, maybe 2022. So they had extended that out. And then, of course, we saw what happened last year. So the question was, how could you be strategically so accurate and tactically wrong? And the answer turned out to be pretty interesting. It was one part not really understanding what was going on in Kim Jong-un's head, and that's the hardest intelligence target, right? And Not the hardest. It used to be the hardest. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Actually, no, Kim Jong-un does not tweet. <laughs> so we don't always know what he's thinking about in the morning. Um, and the second uh, uh, mystery out of, out of this was how did the North Koreans develop enough of an indigenous capability that they were able to go turn on a dime after they suspended their intermediate range missile program in 2016, one the U.S. had attempted to mess with, uh, and turn right around and produce highly successful liquid engine, liquid-fueled engines uh, that came out of an old Soviet design and get them to blast off and be able to do the ranges we've seen in recent times. And uh, the answer seemed to be they kind of missed how quickly the North Koreans were, were able to build up those facilities. And that's what Mike Pompeo didn't like and thus – the inscription on my soon-to-be-favorite mug. Well, you know, it does – I find the fact that the CIA is confused by all this um, and the, and by the North Koreans not that surprising because, you know, I follow Washington pretty closely and I'm utterly confused by where the administration is on all of this here in the United States. Um and, you know, Ben, you've been watching this stuff for a long time. You've been covering foreign policy since the Hoover administration, mm-hmm. uh, uh, something like that, right? And, Ancient. And, and, you know, it's a little confusing here when Nikki Haley is like, no, we will not talk to them unless they denuclearize and this. And then a week later, it's, well, maybe they have to agree to not test and then maybe denuclearization could wait a little bit. And then Tillerson is someplace else and Trump is let's blow the whole thing up. And, you know, where are we? I mean, you know, you have a moment here in this week between your two jobs to study the papers and 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 talk to all your contact. Where That's called you? executive time. <laughs> executive. Yeah, that, that is the great fallacy here. This has been two weeks of fun employment. So if you ask me questions about binge watching Netflix 
or playing with my two-year-old, I might be able to give you a cogent answer. But reading uh, policy papers on North Korea has not been the the uh, full scope of my last two weeks. Did, did you actually show up for the podcast in your pajamas? It's a it's a hoodie. It's a <laughs> Vox sanctioned hoodie, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Vox. Okay, those are work clothes here in Silicon Valley, my friend. Yeah, yeah, but not in London, Corey. So, um, look, you know, I, I think there is a big question uh, as to the extent to which that Tillerson and other people in the State Department are pursuing a level of track to diplomacy, whether or not there are things going on behind the scenes uh, in conversations with high-level North Korean diplomats and officials aside and, and apart from Trump's tweets on the matter that Tillerson is out ahead of his skis. You know, David can probably answer that question in, in greater depth than I, but I think there is, uh, you know, I think it is difficult uh, for the this administration to work uh, in regard to North Korea policy or other policy when the president seems to have an entirely different agenda. Now, there is a chance, that, as some people have written, that the upcoming Winter Olympics in Seoul will provide a little bit of breathing room for the two sides and international other international actors to come together in the spirit of Olympic goodwill. You know, it's a hard thing to say whether or not that exists for more than two weeks. It's not even the Summer Olympics. It's only the Winter Olympics. And nobody really cares all that much about that. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a, a little harsh. That's a dig. <laughs> that's, it's true. That's, that's Ben getting ahead of his skis. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's so snarky. But, <laughs> so it, it's very snarky. Totally true, by the way. Um, now, Corey, you know, as as we sort of look at the next couple of weeks, We've got the approaching Olympics, so we've got a little bit of more activity in the North Korea thing. We've got this confusion within the U.S. government, not only fighting amongst them, but clearly Mike Pompeo doesn't know what's going on in the CIA because if he disagrees with David Sanger, he's wrong. Um, and <laughs> and then on top of all of this, you've got um, you know the Iran deal out there, and then on top of that, You've got a whole bunch of rumblings that Trump is now going to go and shake things up on trade, going after China, going back after NAFTA and so forth. It kind of sort of looks like, you know, you've got this wounded animal and he's going to do everything he can to distract from the, his problems at home. And he doesn't mind shaking things up everywhere in the world. Is that an oversimplification? No, I think that's quite a cogent analysis, David. Wow. Um, the, Do you know the, which David was I, speaking? I mean, did, it was the other I David Roscoff. <laughs> she says that I'm exactly I, right. She says that you had cogent analysis, David. Don't get too excited. She said that was surprisingly <laughs> accurate, David. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I, uh, I do think people who are ascribing to the president a – ruthless genius that when things get tough, he begins to distract us. I, I think that um, is a false narrative. I actually don't think the president is purposeful about stuff. I think he's simply indisciplined. Um, and so it's not that he's trying an elaborate shell game to take your eyes off where the he actually is under the shell. It's that he's just moving shells around because that's what he does. Um, so, so I don't think we should give him so much credit as to think, 
ah, this should tell us the Mueller investigation is getting close because the president, I, I think he watches TV and shouts at the TV like an angry old man and makes conclusions based on, makes policy based on conclusions he reached in the 1980s about trade and immigration and other stuff. And no amount of information has been able to batter its way through that shell. If I can add something, though, David, to that. Of course. I was going to turn to you anyway. Okay, great. Um, I kind of felt like it was my turn. Um, (laughs) No, I I think and I feel like this came up in in the last podcast, but I I don't think that it's it's pre pre thought out, premeditated, whatever. It's not it's not a result of like a cogent decision where Trump says now I'm going to distract people. But it is it is. It does happen as a natural impulse. It's an emotional thing. So when he feels like he's cornered, he'll lash out. And, you know, the other thing, we haven't talked about Pakistan yet. You know, he started the new year off with a tweet blasting Pakistan very publicly. And while the underlying policy approach towards Pakistan, which is basically to say, we're not going to give you more money until you do some of the things that we've been asking you to do now for months and well, arguably years in the previous administrations, you know, that's a that's a that's a correct policy uh, procedure, I believe. But the way that he went about it by bringing it into the light very publicly and making it sort of another one of these face offs between himself and another vulnerable, insecure government <laughs> was unnecessary. I don't think he thought he got up in the morning and thought, now I'm going to tweet about Pakistan. He was just sort of feeling irritable. He was feeling that emotion. And so and he probably had a briefing about Pakistan that morning. And so he thought or well, a segment on Fox and Friends. Right. And so he 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 just tweeted about it um, anyway. So but I do think that the problem is that he has to be in this combative posture vis-a-vis international actors, other heads of state. And I think that's deeply problematic. Well, and we didn't mention that he said, well, I'm not going to fund the Palestinians or, by the way, the fact that the State Department as recently as this week said, well, actually, we're going to fund the Palestinians. He didn't really mean it, which is a further issue here, which is that the president says stuff and confuses things. But this this turbulence, this growing turbulence, um, you know, seems like, you know, if I were out there in the rest of the world, it's a pattern I would worry about. And there are two elements of it that that might worry me a little further if I were a real sophisticated Washington insider or hide my best people in Washington, which is a, almost an oxymoron as a concept goes. But, you know, one is, you know, this week we've seen uh, yet another Republican committee chairman, the chairman of the House uh, Foreign Relations Committee, a Foreign Affairs Committee, um, say that he's going to leave at Royce. Uh, that, that means that there are seven Republican committee chairs who have said they're leaving this year. Now, they're not leaving because they think things are going to get better. They're leaving because they think the time is up and that this will give them a chance to, you know, spend a year going and figuring out how to earn a living and and perhaps have another couple of years of Republican administration to cash in on, on K Street. And then you know, in addition to all of that, we had this story, and Ben, you just made a reference to it. Actually, we made a couple of references to it, where it seems like the president's working less time. 
Now, this is the real inside baseball thing. If he shows up in his office at 11 after executive time, works for four or five hours, doesn't really have a lot of meetings, and then has more executive time. And what he's doing during that executive time, it seems, if you follow his tweets, is he's watching Fox and Friends or Fox News, and he's responding to that, and that's where the tweets come from. His briefing, he doesn't get a you know, he gets his president's daily brief and this kind of thing. But the real briefing he responds to is the one that's being fed to them by the Rupert Murdoch company. And this this has got to sort of scare you if you're somewhere out in the world that this 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 is the these people are sitting there not only trying but capable of triggering the president of the United States, of the most powerful nation on earth, into improvising foreign policy. It, it, I mean, is Ben? I mean, you know, you're yeah, this you're, the, you're going to Fox. That's next generation news gathering. Yeah, and you when must, I and when I tell people, they look at me and they, th- I've gotten a couple of people like at Fox. Um, so that that's <laughs> happened a few times. Yeah, I mean, David, this is a tail wagging the dog story that you couldn't even write before. I mean, the fact that uh, you know the the sort of basis. T- TV morning news is actually writing foreign policy is is sort of incredible to see. Um, you know that said, my last couple of weeks of unemployment have kind of made Trump's 11 a.m. starting the day thing look like pretty efficient business. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was but, taking you a while to get up there in the morning. Yeah, you know, I'm taking my time. Um, but you know, <laughs> it, it is interesting. You know, you mentioned the Iran deal, and that's coming up for certification again at the end of this week. And we know how much it sticks in Trump's craw that he has to stand by this Obama deal that he hates so much and he just has despised both on the campaign trail and since being in office. Uh, and it is a, I think it's a big question as to whether or not he's going to do as he did a couple months ago or ninety days ago or eighty six days ago or whatever it is. Uh, and and continue to allow uh, the waiver uh, to go forth. You know, it would be a big uh, move for Trump to back away from the deal entirely. He seems inclined to let this go to Congress once again. Um, but yeah, and Congress has a lot on its plate as well. I mean, it's got a funding bill that has to pass. But you imagine what the news will bring on Fox and other channels and the things that Trump watches. So I I think that's going to come to a head quite soon. Remember what kind of um, of sanctions relief or sanctions certification this is. Congress was asked to go look at the deal because the president decertified or refused to certify that Iran was in compliance with the deal and Congress – looked at this very seriously for um, 60 days during which time they held no hearings on the subject, had no discussion on the subject and ended up doing nothing, which is what Congress does best. And now what is the president being asked to do? Another part of the legislation requires him merely to extend the same kind of sanctions relief that President Obama extended as part of the deal. And both President Obama and President Trump have uh, subcontracted this out to Rex Tillerson uh, or to the Secretary of State. So John Kerry did it before. Tillerson has done it in recent times. And one of the president's aides said to me before Christmas, the saving grace here is Trump himself does not have to look at it and sign it. 
And in the end, that may be what makes the difference, that this is on Tillerson and Tillerson will probably just sign it and move on. It seems to me, Corey, I mean, you're moving to London to be at the middle of a European discussion on all of this. But I, <laughs> Actually, it, it's to get out of the out of the targeting grid for the North Korean war. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. For those of you who are paying attention here, if Corey is moving out of range, <laughs> maybe maybe we all ought to think about that. Uh, but but if you're our European allies and you're seeing what's going on here, what's the reaction? Yeah, so I don't think European allies are distressed about... I, first, I agree with David. He is exactly right that I think Tillerson is going to sign this and hope it never comes up on the president's radar screen. Um, I think the Europeans are not unhappy about that outcome because they very much worried that President Trump was just going to flat walk away from it. The, as David said, the certification was always just U.S. law, and Europeans wish we wouldn't uh, wish we wouldn't lard up multilateral agreements with our own specific um, hobby horses. So they were never wild about it having been the certification having been a requirement, and they are perfectly willing to let sleeping dogs lie on this because they rightly realize that the if the president pays any more attention to this, he will continue to try and walk away from it. Tillerson, I think, is still on the hook, though. He's still talking as though he's going to improve this agreement. He's going to end the sunset clauses, for example. And I think that's completely unrealistic. Right. I mean, I think the Europeans might be persuaded to you know, undergo a new round of diplomacy, you know, to try to rein Iran in on the other issues that are bothering all of us, you know, like sponsoring terrorism in the Middle East, the atrocities in Syria, et cetera. But the problem is that we have very little leverage right now. We have very little influence. You know, we have power, but we don't have influence because of the way the president's been handling this whole issue from the get-go. So the Europeans are feeling very... Um, bruised, you know, and battered in this process. They've been taken for granted and worse. And so uh, they will. They probably are holding their breaths and expecting Rex Tillerson to, to do what needs to be done. Um, but I think, you know, another administration, another Republican administration would have taken the opportunity to actually do some better diplomacy. Because the reality is, the nuclear issue with Iran is not our number one concern at the moment. Our number one concern is that there are a hundred little Aleppos occurring today in Syria, that the Iran and the Iranian forces and Hezbollah are creeping up ever closer to the Israeli border with ever greater capabilities. And the Israelis think that somehow we and the Russians are going to hold that back. We have the Saudis and the Iranians at loggerheads, uh, Yemeni people suffering uh, because of the ongoing war there. I mean, the, the situation in the Middle East is one that actually has a lot of import for the United States and our European allies. And frankly speaking, we're turning a blind eye to it. That's what we should all be focusing on. 
I, I think it goes even a step further than that. I think that, you know, on the one hand, there's some people out there going to go and look at what's going on in Washington. They're going to go, oh, my God, you know, we can't trust them. We don't know which way this is going to go. We don't, you know, and and some may say, well, let's take it in our own hands, as the South Koreans did with regard to North Korea. That's constructive. Um, others may say, let's take it in our own hands, as the Saudis have done around the Gulf, and maybe that's not quite as constructive. But others are going to go, hey, you know, let's ride this as far as we can. And, you know, you see Bibi Netanyahu, you know, and his government doing all sorts of crazy stuff that I don't think they ever would have done during the Obama administration, including blacklisting, you know, a bunch of BDS and other kinds of organizations uh, from even entering Israel or, you know, this is a, theoretically it's a democracy and they're like blocking people who be, simply because of their political views and, and you know, changing the, the, the laws so it makes it harder to hand over Jerusalem if that were ever part of a deal and, you know, just trying to sort of cash in on the, the, the Trump moment. And, you know, David, I, to me, this this is a potentially fatal error because I think things could backlash. They, you know, they could whip back, snap back very quickly after the departure of Trump, and a bunch of these people who think they're playing this cleverly could be left out there hanging. Yeah, it's absolutely true. In fact, I think they could backlash before Trump left. I mean. One of the things that was always useful about the positions that were taken by both President Obama and um, uh, President uh, Trump – I'm sorry, President Bush before him was that uh, in – especially in, in Israel is that it was always a little bit of a restraining force on the way Israeli prime ministers would act. They would always say, look, I would love to um, – make sure that the United States put its embassy in Jerusalem, but we understand why that can't happen and therefore why we have to leave Jeru the ultimate state of Jerusalem up for, for negotiation. All of those restraints are gone and that allows the, the most extreme elements of Netanyahu's um, uh, coalition to go basically take control and no one can back up and say, you know, you're threatening the U.S. relationship here. And you don't just see this in U.S.-Israel. You're going to see it in a lot of other areas uh, as well. And I suspect you probably will see backlash even before President Trump leaves office. Can I, can I jump in on this, David, because I was just in Israel just very quickly. Um, I was shocked in Israel now at the end of November by the amount of uh, excitement they had about Trump and the venom with, with which they discussed Obama and Democrats. So I think it's, it's even potentially more dangerous for them that it's not only that they've gone to bed, you know, or whatever, thrown their lot in full, you know, hook, line and sinker with the Trump camp, but that they also are, have been uh, so soured mentally against Obama that they've colored the Democrats with this. And we counseled them to be very careful because you don't want U.S. policy towards Israel to be something that's partisan. So I just want to throw that in there because it was quite alarming to people like me, Democrats who are centrist Democrats, to hear the Israeli politicians speaking the way they did about Obama and Democrats. Well, this is kind of, I mean, it's alarming on several levels, isn't it, Ben? Because, you know, I, on, on, on the one level, of course, it's, it's, it's alarming that they just, you know, tar all Democrats with one brush. But um, 
you know, part of the problem, you know, part of the problem is it goes to Obama. You know, Obama alienated a lot of people in the Middle East with some really, really bad policy um, and um, was not a great foreign policy president. And he, he didn't engender a lot of respect in a lot of places. He did pretty well domestically. Um, but I think we need to be able to see those things. But Obama's not the only Democrat, and the, the Obama foreign policy team is not the only Democrat foreign policy team. And, and, and you know, Evelyn, you know, actually owned up to being a centrist Democrat, which used to be, you know, kind of a popular thing to be. But, but you know, we, we are, I think, very, very confused about where we all are. Sure, I think that's, I think that's true. You, you know, it strikes me that, Trump has been testing the waters here and Israel is an interesting example of that. You know, the designation of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and the move to U- to to shift the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was significant. We published, you know, there were a ton of stories in Press Inc and pixels on websites generated to why this was such a terrible idea. Um, but we haven't seen. You know, there were protests in the streets in Ramallah, in the West Bank, but not of the kind that the, you know, I think that a lot of us worried uh, that we would see. Um, you know, I and you see this with regard to his long leash for the Saudis. Um, you know, I think uh, David is right here that there might be a big backlash. That it, there is a danger in letting things out of control now. The Obama administration, I think, to be fair, was thrown some curveballs and, and whether you want to make an argument for the decline of American international power or this was a policy you know, largely constructed from the White House to, to sort of uh, – to take American influence a little bit back from the fore. Uh, you know, the Arab Spring and efforts like that, you know, and, and global movements like that showed, uh, you know, I, I think some people say that the Obama administration acted extremely poorly. Others will make the argument that these were exogenous events that were very difficult for, you know, the White House or the imprint of American power to actually affect the course of history. I'm going to leave aside Syria and the efforts there. Um, but I don't know. I, I you know, Back to your question, I don't really see a democratic foreign policy emerging here as much as it's just sort of standard box opposition to the Trump administration. You could say the same thing of domestic policy as well by and large. You know, and that, that's the oddity of this moment in time because we have a policy vacuum going on in both places. We've spent the first year of the Trump administration hearing what they want to get out of NAFTA, the Paris Agreement, the Iran deal any restrictions on what they could do on North Korea. But we haven't seen very much constructive diplomacy in the direction of what it is they do want to do other than build the wall. Yeah, they don't articulate their policy. And in fact, a lot of it is a continuation of Obama administration policy, whether you agree with that or not. And in some cases, a little bump up, like um, in the case of Ukraine, we now are offering them lethal defensive assistance. Which, yeah, well, which you know, I, Obama I, I, probably I, I, should have done a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> Obama should have done yes. it a long time ago. Obama had a debate about whether to give them flashlights or, or you know, blankets. I mean, kind of craziness. But I no, mean, they needed know, they needed blankets, David. I have to stand up and stand up for for my previous <laughs> decision making in my old office. They needed blankets. They needed everything because essentially the warehouses had been stripped bare by the corrupt leaders. But it's true they also could have used. 
the Javelin anti-tank system, which they ultimately yeah. got now from Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And Corey, well, is, of course. Corey, Corey is ordering them up mugs. I just want you to know. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. That, that, that was my point, was that they needed something a little bit meatier than that. And I know that a lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, this is very similar to Obama policy. Well, it's not on TPP, and it's not on NAFTA, and it's not on picking a trade war with the Chinese and the way they are. It's not on North Korea. It certainly doesn't seem to be Obama policy on Iran. It's not Obama policy on Israel. Uh, it's not Obama policy on alliances. It's not Obama policy on the United Nations. Corey, I mean, th- don't don't you think that sort of um, uh, th- you know th- meme doesn't really hold up? Yes, I absolutely agree with you, David. The number of folks from the Obama administration who, uh, who claim that this is nothing new and he just, it took time and now it's working. Um, you could have picked a policy that wouldn't take that much time. A lot of them were available to the Obama administration for the choosing. And even where there is continuity, the strongest case for continuity, I believe, is the ISIS fight. But even there, there are important differences. Uh, One, as Evelyn said, whether you agree with it or not, um, I personally do not agree with the Trump administration having resigned itself to leaving Bashar al-Assad in power. Um, But the Obama administration at least pretended that's not what they were doing all the while they did it. The Trump administration flat out said that they're going to leave Bashar al-Assad in power because they're more worried about um, their, they basically buy into the totalitarian argument for ruling Middle Eastern countries. Um, The second thing that they did different from the Obama administration was they they doubled down on Iraq. Not only are we going to have troops in Iraq, we're going to have them there after the defeat of ISIS. Um, they, they made a choice about who we're going to help and who we're going to hurt in the Middle East, and that sent a big blaring signal. Um, so I think even in the case of ISIS, they have made important departures from Obama territory, and that has made the policy more effective. Uh, in the anti-ISIS fight. Now, th- that, of course, doesn't mean that they've stopped doing, you know, all the stupid things that Obama did. And as you pointed out, there are a couple areas where Obama essentially handed over Syria to the Russians and the Iranians and Assad. And, and, and look, Trump, so handing over Syria to the Russians and Iranians and Assad. Uh, and another thing that uh, Trump seems to be doing that is similar to Obama, although he's doubling down and he's doing it in a stupider way, um, is Afghanistan, where he's double, you know, adding additional troops into the mix, despite the fact he ran saying he didn't want to do that, just as Obama did. But at the same time, he's saying, fuck off, Pakistan. We're not going to give you any money. And we don't like you guys. And, you know, there's one, it's one thing to put pressure on some uh, country like Pakistan if you have a goal and a strategy. But it's another thing to sort of, you know, cut off, um, you, you know, half of of the equation that you need to uh, be working with in order to solve the problem of something like cross-border terrorism in that part of the world. Uh, ben, well, ben, go on. Nope, go ahead. No, I was just going to turn to Ben and I was just going to say, 
this this is this has been sort of undercovered because there's all these other things going on. But I remember a time when Obama at least called it AFPAC. You know, at least he saw that this was connected. And Trump is de-AFPACing AFPAC. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's two things here. One is that, yes, the Trump administration is putting a few thousand more troops into Afghanistan. But I think it would be insanity to think that the those additional troops will change the course of that conflict or stabilize in any remarkable way. And there are recent articles about Russia's increasing influence in Afghanistan, working with other actors to affect the course of the outcome there. Uh, so that's another, you know, territory uh, that he has ceded to the Russians. Um, with regard to Pakistan, you know, I don't think it is it, it is insignificant that Trump's tweet, uh, which so inflamed uh, Islamabad and the Pakistan high command, uh, you know, we have seen over the course of this long conflict in Central Asia that when Pakistan is ruffled, it responds in quiet but extremely destructive ways by, you know, giving license or uh, funding to groups that wreak havoc in India or across the border in Afghanistan. Now, I agree with Evelyn here that the U.S. policy towards Pakistan, which is sort of bribe them and keep them quiet, doesn't look particularly good, hasn't resulted in particularly sound outcomes. But this is a dangerous thing when Trump starts tweeting at Pakistan and pissing them off. You mean because they've got 100 nuclear weapons or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. I thought they had 140 nuclear weapons, David. Well, you can't find the No one knows where those 40 <laughs> are. last 40 are. They could be, they could be almost any place. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, once, once the North Koreans work their way up to a, a good Pakistani 100, you know, they'll have quite a team. But all joking aside, I mean, as a, as someone who's worked dabbled in non-pro off and on uh, non-proliferation policy, you know, we do need to have some kind of access in order to remain confident to some extent that the Pakistani government has a grip on their nuclear materials and know-how. The other thing is that from a defense perspective, we still rely on the logistics corridor through Pakistan, especially since the alternative, which was developed in another moment when the Pakistanis were exercising their peak against us and punishing us, when they closed off the route uh, basically through Pakistan to Afghanistan, we established a route through Russia. Well, that route through Russia no longer exists because of sanctions and actually even before sanctions, we'd started moving away from using it. So we still need the corridor to bring troops and material in and out of Afghanistan, and they know that. And, of course, we need their help fighting the, the, the Taliban, fighting terrorism in Afghanistan and, frankly speaking, in Pakistan to the extent that they have the will. Yeah, but on top of that, David, you know, one of the other things that happened over the sort of holiday break that nobody was paying much attention to was that the foreign minister of China, the foreign minister of Afghanistan, the foreign minister of Pakistan all got together to chat about their mutual interests. And this is all consistent with the Chinese one belt, one road um, policy, which is actually, you know, I, I got to say, if we were making a list of sort of the top five foreign policy initiatives of the past five years, you know, one of them would be Vladimir Putin trying to, you know, disrupt elections overseas. He was pretty successful at that. But One Belt, One Road might be at the top of the list. They are building influence. They are building infrastructure. They are doing deals. They are 
opening ties. They are building railroads from China to Europe. They're building sea lanes. They're building, they've built a military base in Djibouti. They're considering building one in Pakistan. You know, it's not just that our policies are dumb or likely not to achieve the goals that we want. There are other people who are sitting there going, we've got a better idea. Pay attention to our side. So this is the other great mystery of Trump foreign policy, which is he seems perfectly happy to keep a series of vacuums going. We discussed this a little bit last week. And, you know, a vacuum in foreign policy doesn't last for very long. Somebody's going to go fill it. And the Chinese have had a fabulous 15 or 20 years of vacuum work here because we spent time that they never anticipated we would spend tied up in the Middle East while they were building up what they needed to build up. We are now openly declaring that we're pulling back to our, our borders and and uh, giving up competition in some places. Um, we walked away from TTP. We didn't put this on our list before, which would have been one way to sort of gather a coalition against Chinese trade practices. So if I was the Chinese, I would do exactly what they are doing, which is to say, you know, the U.S. isn't going to be out here organizing anything. So why don't you get on this team? Because, you know, to go back to um, Corey's earlier uh, uh, analogy to Earl Weaver of the uh, great Baltimore Orioles, um, you know, at least the Chinese are willing to go pitch something over the plate. Um, yeah. The, and and what's more, they seem to be headed in the right direction. You know, I mean, I think one of these things is, you know, you know, we, we have debates periodically, you know. Is America, you know, faltering? Are, are we waning as a power? Or are we strengthening as a power? Um, but Corey, it seems to me that you know you can't not question America's role in the world right now. You 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 can't not you know doubt whether America is going to be what it was. Um, we can argue, you know, our views on, on which direction things are going, but but this is a moment where perhaps as dangerous as the potential of a you know uh, of a mushroom cloud hanging over the 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 horizon for the United States is that there is a giant question mark hanging over the United States yeah nikki haley over the weekend suggested that the president creating uncertainty is a great thing in international politics and i think that is profoundly mistaken Right, especially for the guarantor of the existing order to start flipping tables over as though there are no consequences to that kind of uncertainty. I think it dramatically, first of all, it shows a, a deep-seated ignorance of, about how much the existing order is in our interests. Second, it shows a genuine deafness to what allies have been telling the administration for the last year, which is, you're scaring us, you're making this hard, we would like some reassurance, we don't want to hedge our bets, please don't make us hedge our bets. And the administration has proceeded on courses that require good neighbors and allies like Canada and Mexico to think about what they do without American leadership and what they do without American participation and what they may even have to do if America is overtly hostile to their objectives. So, Can I clap? So yeah. 
Yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> Applaud. <laughs> I want to go. I want to go even one further here. I mean, look, there is some. You want to go a step further than applauding for her? (laughs) I'm I'm jumping on the table right now. You can't see it. No. uh, Yeah, go on. Look, there is some virtue to a transactional level of politics, and and maybe Trump deserves some credit for that. But this is fundamentally a guy who makes deals, and these deals are: what do I get out of what I'm giving or what I'm offering? And the problem is that American foreign policy since World War II has been about a lot of intangibles, about American influence. You don't – you know, whether it is the role in the world, America has spent an enormous amount of money and an enormous uh, effort in generating goodwill. And that has put American foreign policy and American power into the prime mover in global politics. That's not something that you can make a deal for. That's not something you can, you know, strong arm – uh, an ally to get. Uh, and I think that, that that is a real danger of this administration's foreign policy. That Trump fundamentally doesn't understand that. It's a what do I get out of it? Well, you know, influence is an, an inchoate thing. And I, I, I can't see that this White House understands that. I'm clapping well, at that like too. For, work, for use of inchoate. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Because he does make a living with his words. Just moving words um, around, David, not writing them. <laughs> He's just revealed his role as a goalie, not a forward. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, I like to think of a midfielder, a midfielder, right? An architect of something. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. I admit it. Wow. This is, this is, this is really sort of inside baseball fans for – from the journalism side. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, as we sort of wrap up here, right, there's one other subtext of this. And the other subtext of this is that um, Trump, you know, there used to be a saying in China, which is Beijing makes policies and the provinces make other policies. It was in Chinese, but you get the idea. Um, it's and still here, poetic. You thank you. But, but Trump makes policy and and then subtly, as we saw in this case with the Palestinians, where Trump says we're going to cut off the money, and then the State Department goes, yeah, but maybe we won't. Uh, or Trump says no LGBT you know, in the military, and then the military says maybe we won't. And Trump says belligerent things in North Korea and other people. Is that Trump makes policies, and the deep state makes other policies. And, you know, yeah, this plays into this whole Republican thing. But, you know, this is deep state radio. I have to say, to me, the deep state are the heroes. It's the deep state that are going to come and, you know, hold Trump accountable for all the bad stuff that he's done. And in the interim, the deep state of the intelligence community, the defense community, the State Department, the professionals that are in those positions are working tirelessly around the clock to keep Donald Trump from screwing things up so that they can't be fixed. Um, does anybody disagree with that? Nope. America. Yeah. And also remember, before we called it the deep state, we called it the bureaucracy and laughed at it because it was full of a bunch of of faceless bureaucrats, right? Now they are, you know, ev- nerds. or nerds, right? That's <laughs> deep true? staters. Yes, right. Um, so uh, that's what they were when this was a, a, a much more politically um, a non-charged phrase. 
by deep state, it's supposed to suggest that as in Pakistan where this was sort of made up, that there is a cabal that's really running the country and everybody else is supposed to be you know, completely for show. Well, given the things that Trump has done in the past year, just walking away from that list of treaties and agreements we discussed, uh, that's not deep state work. Uh, well, no, that's that's true. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do think everybody is grateful that we did come up with the term deep state um, because if this were called bureaucracy radio. <laughs> <laughs> the sick part is maybe the same people who are listening yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Nerds. Ben Parker walking around his apartment in his PJs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd still listen. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that's right. I bet. Well, first of all, Ben, congratulations on your new job. Thank you. You were going to do you. great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I appreciate um, it. And uh, they're very, very lucky to have you in working with you at Foreign Policy. You are one of the very, very best people there. You held everything together even when there were those of us trying to tear it all apart. Um, <laughs> it's, and, too kind. Uh, it's too kind. And you deserve, you deserve uh, a lot of success there. Um, and I notice you know, Corey is going on to a new job. Of course, I'm in a new job here. Um, Evelyn is doing some new things. Sanger – same old. <laughs> it's so, complacency, well, really. It's complacency. You know, I, I just like I, I, I knew that nobody else would ever hire me, and I'm just trying to like you know work out this so that nobody nobody notices what I'm doing, right? Well, I noticed that after the new publisher of the New York Times made some statement, you know, as new publishers are want to, and everybody at the Times immediately tweeted out, "Oh my God, he's a very stable genius." <laughs> That the the Sanger tweet said something to the effect of, my family has been involved with the New York Times since the Gutenberg, you know, printing press was invented or something like this. Well, it it made the point. Were were you sold to the New York Times as an (laughs) insider? It was part of the the contract. Yeah, they've all been in different different parts of the New York Times. uh, And I'm the first one actually – in the news reporting uh, side of it, but uh, it's it's true. And you know, I thought what was interesting about his statement was it went back to some journalistic truths that go back to when Adolf Ox bought the paper, which was roughly when David started reading it, and um, and, <laughs> and and they still apply. And I, you know, it is actually the most interesting thing journalistically that's happened in the past 12 months to my mind is that we've all rediscovered what fact-based investigative reporting is all about. And if I have one big wish for 2018 is that it's another year for American journalism like 2017. Here, here, here. here. Take take that, Oprah. Take that. (laughs) I say David Sanger for president. He's now there's dated. there's a truly truly dangerous idea. <laughs> he's, he's he's not tainted with all that money and success. No, um, he's just tainted by a lot of expertise. Yeah. Oh Ain't well. No bunker deep enough, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is a mug. If I ever heard a mug. Um, well, that's that brings us back to where we started these things out, folks. We're soliciting good um, uh, slogans to go on the back of sweatshirts because we have sweatshirts that are being made 
with the logo of the Ministry of SNARK. And this will go with our T-shirts and our mugs. And if you come up with a good, like, um, Latin phrase that should be the motto of the Ministry of SNARK, and you come up with one of the top five, we will send to you this week a fantastic T-shirt with the I'm smart genius quote of the president on it and, you know, a thing on the back saying Deep State Radio um, smart and stable since 2017, possibly an overstatement. And I want to break in here to cheer the fact that Deep State Radio nerds can get their shirts in women's sizes as well as men's. We here on Deep State Radio do not pretend that there is such a thing as unisex. There are men's T-shirts and women's. Bravo, David. Well, we will. You you may wear whatever T-shirt gender identity you. (laughs) Can we get some kid sizes though? Kids, yeah, yeah. Yeah. coming up. Yeah, Yeah. it's a good. Yeah, no, that's that'll be next. Will be the Deep State onesie, which, by the way, (laughs) David currently wearing under his clothing. Any, it's warm, but it's tough. It's warm, but it's tough to go to the bathroom. Yeah, very tough. It's very, I that, think maybe that, you didn't wow. mean onesies. You meant like footsies or something. I no, he meant, he, meant, he, meant he meant he meant he meant he meant onesies. I know. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I had I had several responses to that, and I stopped every one of them because even though we're not on like a regulated radio network, good yeah, right. Well, you knew that Corey would be in there in two seconds with that's an image I don't need or something. To <laughs> she would be. She would be. Yeah. Well, folks, tune in next week. You'll hear what those images are. You'll you'll hear more about our swag. Go to by the way, if you if you're on Twitter and you uh, follow the Deep State Swag handle, you'll get all the latest news about Deep State Swag. Um, or just follow us on Twitter, uh, and you should do that. You should follow Corey, and you should follow Ben, and you should follow David, and you should follow Evelyn and everybody else. By the way, Rosa this week was in Turkey. She'll be back next week. She's scoping Um, out for any radio uh, listeners who want to know. We have sent her off to go find the old Atlas missile silos left over from when Kennedy (laughs) pulled the Atlas missiles out of Turkey. Yeah, so – yeah, she's, no, and she's, she's coming and back. She, she, she'll she, be opening this up for a party sometime real soon. Yeah. Anyway, please <laughs> join us back uh, because, you know, three days, four days passes here and it's like a lifetime. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, David. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.